Bunzai! To baby trees. Bunzai. Bunzai! Bunzai. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it, yeah. it's. He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. The Black Pondo Podcast. You can ask me anything. I'll, I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> nice. Okay. I wound up at Sacramento State in a two-bedroom apartment with two other guys and used to get claustrophobic and I'd go out to nurseries and stumbled onto a nursery owned by a Japanese family who had bonsai. It was the first time. I didn't even know what bonsai was at the time never heard of it but for for whatever reason i caught my fancy and i started playing around just on my own i didn't know at the time about bonsai clubs and sacramento clubs the oldest club in in, in america i believe had no idea uh, i used to just buy trees and <laughs> i would uh unwire take apart clo wire clothes hangers and use those to wire trees with and didn't know anything about bonsai tools, just had whatever tools around I had. And then I found the Sunset Book, and I thought I found the Bible, and I was reading through that. And this was about 1966 when I was in college. And then I was drafted in 68, and then for whatever reason, kind of set it aside, lost interest. And I moved to Point Arena in 1970 to teach school. And about 1983, 84, my wife, for my birthday, bought me a bonsai book, some tools and some trees, and just kind of encouraged me to kind of, re, you know, get back into it, start doing the bonsai part of it. And then the whole key for me was we were in Santa Rosa, and I saw a flyer for the Redwood Empire Bonsai Club, and I joined that. And, of course, clubs make all the difference. You're with people who share a common interest, you know, there's workshops, uh, resources, uh, experienced members. So that from 85 on, to me, was kind of my turning point uh, in bonsai. My only challenge was it was a two-hour drive for me to go to the meetings, and I taught school, so I would leave after school, drive two hours to the meetings, turn around, drive back home. Uh, if you're not familiar with Highway 1 in Northern California, it's not exactly a freeway. So there was nights when it was raining so hard or so foggy, I could barely see the road coming home, get home about midnight and teach school the next day. And so that was kind of my, the, the, the brief story about my, about my bonsai experience. Yikes, <clears throat> that sounds sketchy. It's, it's crazy what we do for things that we're passionate about. For sure. And so, so you kind of got back into bonsai in 1983? 85. Yeah. Oh, 85. Okay. Got it. Got it. Nice. I was born in 83. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. And so uh, tell me a little bit about what bonsai was like back then. And were you part of more than one club or was it, was it primarily, were you in Rebs back in 85? Yeah. So I, the Rebs was the closest, clo is the closest club to me. Uh, <laughs> I was invited and quit twice. Baba invited me to, to join them, but they're in Oakland, which is three hours, and uh, I joined for a while, then I quit, and they invited me again, and I joined, and I quit again. It just was too much distance. And at the time, 
their club wasn't that well organized, and I would drive down for these meetings, and nothing was really scheduled, and I'd turn around and drive home, so I thought, well, six hours of driving time, I have better things to do. So basically, I kind of put my energy into the Rebs club. That's great. Yeah. Uh, was there a teacher at the time in the the Rebs club? Well, Masa Mizumi was our sensei, and he was from Berkeley, and his lady friend lived in Sebastopol, and in 1981, the two of them, along with some locals, <coughs> formed the, the Rebs Club, and he was the first sensei and my first teacher. And then jumping forward to now, you are quite involved with Rebs still, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that was... <laughs> That's incredible. That's a long time. Many years, and it's supposed to be two-year term, and my two years would be up, and I said, okay, my term's up. And they said, well, Bob, you're doing a good job. Why don't you just keep on being president? And so I did it for, I lost track at, at least 10 years or more. And I finally said, you know, you, you tend to get stale if you have the same person and things kind of just kind of are the same. There's not new ideas. And I think change is really important. And so I, I stepped aside, not out of feeling, you know, upset or angry i just thought it was a, it was a healthy thing for the club for me not to be president continually but i've also been the show chair I can, i've lost track how many years now and i'll be show chair for our show coming up in august and i might as well promote it with ryan neal as our headliner it's in, in august so anyway and there's plenty of uh, i think there's plenty of word going out on different avenues so at shows flyers and facebook etc etc so anyway so that's, oh, that's a lot of my time and then also for whatever reasons I, I, I being so far away i couldn't really contribute to what i wanted to to bonsais but being a vendor i would go to conventions and stuff and every time there'd be a new team in place starting from square one you'd have a new vendor chair who really hadn't done it before it's not a criticism they just hadn't done it before and things changed uh, you know you close for lunch you weren't close for lunch the the spacing whatever and so they asked me to do it one year which i did and i said listen why don't you just let me be the vendor chair since i i am a vendor uh, i also am a club president so i can balance the two needs of you know what's good for the show what's good for the vendors and so for the last probably 20, 25 years, I've been vendor chair for GSBF, Shoheen, Collection North, our show, and so on. So so I'm involved with the GSBF for our Bonsai Rendezvous in October. And so uh, part of that committee also. And what's nice is with the Zooming, you can do a lot of stuff, you know, just from home too, and meet with the other people. But the, that's going to be a really a nice event too, with Bjorn coming from Tennessee to be our headliner. Yeah, both of those events that you just talked about are uh, sound really exciting. And <clears throat> wow, you are wearing a whole lot of hats. You got a lot going on right now. Um, I've been to a few Reb shows before, and they were very, very good shows, very high quality shows. So congrats on that. That is. That is incredible. So you, uh, Rebs was, didn't do a show for a couple years, right? During COVID? We've had three, we've had, a, we've had a three year absence of having shows. And so 
And so part of my my thinking was, if we're going to come back with a show, we might as well make a statement. And so, and when Ryan Neal first came back, we connected. Him and Zach were friends. You know, they had been at conventions. He bought lots of trees from us, and so we had that relationship. And I was trading him trees for his time to work on my trees, and he'd stay here. I'd sit at his place. And we've had like a 10, 12 year relationship since he's come back and we've always been friends. And I said, well, why, you can, you can, uh, my feelings, you can always ask and they'll either say yes or no. And, and I know for Ryan, it's basically national, international events now. And I, I contacted him and Ryan. I said, would Ryan be willing to come down and be our headliner? And they said, yeah, we'd love, to. we talked to Ryan, he'd love to do it. And I was joking with him at the Pacific show you know that you're coming to do our club show etc and people asked about it and, and he, he said we do have a relationship or a long relationship and you know that's friendship so that was kind of cool <laughs> yeah oh absolutely well i don't think you could have got a, a better headliner for the show he's very very talented and very popular and uh sounds like it will be a fantastic event i'm really excited to, to see it challenges were changed with our old location the venue was perfect but there was no air conditioning and air in august was always a challenge and so my goal was to go out and find a new venue which i did my mistake was i found the venue before i found or asked ryan the venue is smaller than our old venue but it's air conditioned <laughs> Uh -huh. Ryan coming, I think we're going to have a big crowd. My, I, I'm just hoping we can accommodate everybody to be coming to, because we're offering a couple of workshops and they'll sold out very quickly. You know, so there's there's a lot of interest in the show. So anyway, yeah, the I, new venue, air conditioned. So we're happy about that. <laughs> Most definitely, that's very important. And I think uh, the bonsai community is passionate enough. I mean, judging from how packed the Pacific Bonsai Expo was. If you have some good trees there and, and you have Ryan Neal there, I think people will be happy. Uh, they'll have smiles on their faces and uh, they'll have a good time. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah, after three years, we're, we're anxious to come back anyway and have our show. I always, when I, if I don't mind saying, what I find is your trees never look as good as when you're thinking about shows and, get, and really getting them ready. And you were thought, and we all thought, well, three years, well, and everybody's at home, we'll just work on our trees that really look good. And that really didn't happen, at least for me. <laughs> you know, you got busy doing other things. There wasn't this idea, well, there's a show coming up. I should be working on my trees. And we didn't have workshops and things like that either. So shows are a good incentive to bring your trees up to the level that they deserve. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about high quality shows. I feel like I also like the, the competitive aspect of things. I always think about, say, for example, the Olympics. If there was no gold, bronze, silver medals, I wonder how people would, how hard people would actually push and train in their sport. But yes, I, uh, I'm all about having shows and uh, I think they're very important for the community. Well, it's just good exposure to the public too, to see who you are, what you do and what you offer. Mm -hmm chance for us to exhibit our trees is kind of a win-win for everybody yeah well um bob tell me a little bit about your personal collection these days how's that looking well, it's, it's looking better but, uh, about 
I forget, four or five months ago, I thought, well, we're having a show coming up. I'm going to reach out to some of my Rebs friends who I know are you know, somewhat serious, and maybe we can just start a study group and kind of think about working together. And it's always great when you're in a group, you can bounce ideas off of each other, get you know opinions from other people. So we started meeting, and then Adam Toth, T-O-T-H, came back from Japan after three years, and Jonas introduced me to him at the Pacific show. We chatted for a while, and he came to one of our meetings, and we talked a little bit, and I said, you know, maybe you would be interested in kind of being our workshop leader. And so we have been using Adam as kind of our lead. So what we found was that it's great you work together as a group, but you really need a workshop leader, especially somebody like Adam or these other people that go on Japan and train formally. It's made a big difference. And so uh, we've been doing that with Adam, uh, I guess, the last four Three or four, he's, I think he's done three or four workshops with us, but we'll continue on with him now too. So. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I've I've seen some of Adam's work, and I followed his uh, Instagram page while he was over at Taishoen in Japan. Right. And he does some really great work. In fact, uh, I really hope to have him on this podcast as well. I actually reached out, and hopefully he uh, he takes me up on the offer. But uh, that's that's fantastic. Now, so Reb's uh, Reb's Reb's had Kathy Shaner as the the head instructor for a long time. Is that correct? And yeah, like after Moss, and then Kathy was a Reb sensei after Moss, and then she had her you know workshops, advanced workshops, and so on. And then she moved to Alabama prior to COVID or during COVID, and was that was always kind of her goal. And then we really haven't had that conversation formally as a club, but I think most clubs now don't have a sensei for the club. And so we haven't really uh, gone down that road looking for a club sensei. I, I think, uh, and, I, and I like the idea of reaching out to different resources. I mean, Kathy was good about that too. She'd always... Uh, encourage us to have other people come in and do workshops and not just her. Uh, because traditionally, in early years of bonsai, if you were the club sensei, you were the club sensei and nobody else came in and that was it. And so uh, that's changed a lot too. But I, I don't think the idea of having a sensei is something we're going to be, in my opinion, be talking about. Yeah. That's really interesting. I and I I haven't had uh, a ton of experience with bonsai clubs. Uh, really, kind of the only club that I was in was Bay Island Bonsai with Boone, where he was a hundred percent the teacher, and that was a great experience. Uh, and then most recently, I've been working with Peter T in more of like a workshop type setting and having him come to my house and going up to his house. I feel like there's a lot of different ways that you could structure a club. Uh, you know. And it's it's interesting to think about what works best for the individuals. And I think there's more than one right way, but I've seen some clubs that seem to work really well and then maybe others that don't work so well, but it, it's interesting to think about. Right, yeah. You know, I, I told Peter the last time I saw him, I said, I just really respect the work you're doing. Your trees are just <laughs> the best, I mean, and they, at the Pacific show, it, <laughs> it sure played out too. His work is really very impressive. 
Yeah. Finished, finished tree. I mean, you, you can pick out a Peter Key tree and, and know his work, but I'm very impressed with Peter. And, you know, when I first got into bonsai, Kathy was the first to go to Japan. And, and after, I mean, we, we've had a lot of people now go and come back now. So we have a lot of resources, especially on the West Coast here, too, of, you know, really. Uh, that you know that have gone and come back and are really kind of uh, professionals now that are really helpful for us too. So that's much yep. appreciated. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And I I'm a, a massive fan of Peter T's work. I'm very very impressed. I love walking around his garden. Sometimes it feels like I, I forget, and I think that maybe I'm in Japan at a Japanese <laughs> professional garden, but he has a, a very high level of skill. And yeah. really lucky to have him, most definitely, and and lots of lots of great other professionals uh, on the West Coast. Yeah, we used to use Peter for workshops before he went to Japan. Yeah, he was he good back then. To Sebastopol <laughs> and have workshops, and we would you know, study with Peter too. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Uh, so going back to your collection a little bit, Bob, uh, <laughs> I was looking on Facebook. Uh, you have a. Uh, do you still have several redwoods? I know you sell them. Do you do you keep some of them for yourself at least? <laughs> you know, I I do have my well. You know this. I mean, my niche is pre bonsai or rough material where I collect and sell before I actually work and style on them. Every once in a while, I think it's only happened three times. Somebody has wanted a tree out of my collection. And the price wasn't an object, so it wasn't too painful to sell them. <laughs> so, well, you have any more trees you want to sell? <laughs> but not often. I, I just recently sold a tree to uh, Tommy Lee, you know, because he yeah. was And I met him at Pacific. Bob Prester introduced me to him, and he was, you know, quite uh, thrilled about it. But I did tell him, you have a responsibility now, you know. I, I had 10 years in the styling that tree, and I don't normally, but I knew with Bob Pressler as his resource that at least he had a professional working with him. It wasn't just this. And I don't know his skill level anyway, so I don't want to go there. But I, I've only done it three times where I sold trees. Uh, one time was at uh, Bill's National Show. Uh, I had a tree in the exhibit, which happened to win the best North American species or something. And the guy from the Kennet collection, was it Doug Paul? Yeah. Zach was back there with Ryan Neal in the vending, and he approached Zach and said, is that tree for sale? So they called me, and we agreed on a price. So that was another redwood. <laughs> but I've only sold two redwoods that I were in my collection for like 10 years I've sold. You know, the rest are what I call pre-bonsai. And I sold one other tree out of my collection to somebody else, but... Um, it's always I don't want to sell a price, so it's always okay. <laughs> gotcha. Ah, oh, that's that's tough. Uh, letting go of your pride and joy, your great trees. Um, although I told him to Tommy, you know, it is you have a responsibility now. There's ten years in this tree. You know, it's it's not a novelty or just kind of something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, did uh, did Tommy Lee? Did he come to your house, or did he? Did he? Uh, you know, I don't know if he's on Facebook. Bob Prestor is posting pictures. He would travel with the group and take him to bonsai nurseries, and they were 
up at Mariah and saw Redwoods and Pressler knew where they came from because I've sold him trees. So he contacted me and said, you know, they're looking for, at first I sent them pictures of my raw material. And they go, no, 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 we want, finally want something that's finished. So, okay, here it is. And so Bob Pressler and uh, Doyle, do you know Doyle Sato, I think, from Southern California, Doyle? They yeah. Okay. The house and picked it up. And I guess it was a surprise birthday present for Tommy Lee. <laughs> so they took it back to him. They took pictures of him with the tree when he got it and was kind of excited. And then he came up to the Pacific show, and that's where he, we had the conversation up there when he came up to the show. So, yeah. yeah. Ah, that, that, I, I think that is just the coolest thing. Um, and not many people it was, have... It was really funny is, to me. I taught middle school for 40 years. And so a lot of my Facebook friends or my prior students are in their 50s and 60s now. <laughs> they're just to get their reaction. It's like, Mr. Scheinman, you're a rock star. We didn't know that. <laughs> you you 100% are. <laughs> That's so awesome. That is rad. I love that. <clears throat> Not many people can say they sold the tree to Tommy Lee. So <laughs> nice work there. That's awesome. So, so how, how many trees do you currently have in your personal collection, would you say, right now? I, I would say in the 35 to 40 range. Yeah. Okay. So Very nice. Yeah. There's one redwood of yours that I absolutely love. It's a big tree. You've shown it quite a few times. Kind of hard to describe without a picture. It does have a, a hole towards the bottom. Right. Uh, and it's got a pretty good amount of deadwood. I know you have a little, yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not, it's not a formal upright. It's, it was kind of a, yeah. Yep, I think you know the one I'm talking about. I, I love that, that tree. Was the Artisan's Cup. If you get yeah. the book from the Artisan's Cup. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, yeah. What I'm proud about that tree, and I still have that tree, good. is that in the Artisan's Cup, when the judging was done, and it's not a criticism. Ryan and I are friends, so please don't take this as a critic. But the first three or four, the first three trees that won awards were all in Ryan's hands that he worked on. The next highest score was my redwood. <laughs> so, ah. so I'm quite pleased with that. And then Walter Paul, one of the judges, came up to me and said, I judged that as the best tree in the, in, in the show. They threw out the high and low scores, but it did score for, I think the, the winning scores were like around 51, 50, 51, and mine's came in like at 48. So I was pleased with that. So yeah, I, I know that tree very well. <laughs> so that's yeah. really hard to part with. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, you should never sell that one. Even if it's, <clears throat> I don't know, someone else famous comes after it, just say no. Very nice. Okay, I uh, I think I saw a really nice uh, pyrocantha as well on your Facebook page. Do you still have that? Yep. It's, Very it's nice. Interesting. It, it 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 alternates every other year. It it'll make this wonderful show of flowers and berries, and then the next year very sparse. It's like it recovers a year and it comes back the second year after that. And since they've had it. It's always been that pattern of that tree. Huh, I don't know if that's interesting. for all pyracanthas or not, but uh, I, mean, I know like fruit, like our apple trees, that if we have a bumper crop one year, it may not be as, you know, next year too. So I think it's something to the, 
I think uh, pyrocantha, I feel like, is somewhat of an underrated species in bonsai here. Uh, maybe because we use them so commonly in the landscape and, like, you know, hedges and things like that. Uh, but I really think that they can create some really beautiful bonsai, especially when they have those different colored berries on them, red or orange, or can make really nice trees for sure. You know, I just, uh, I, I was, ne I've never been a big fan of boxwoods. And I found one that I really, really liked. In fact, I put it on Facebook. And I'm going to have it in the show. So it's like, you, you can't dismiss any species. You'll always find probably something that you like. You know, like I said, in general, I, I'm not drawn to boxwoods, but this one really grabbed my attention. So it's it's in a serrated pot. And actually, I had Adam, I worked with an Adam on one of our workshops, and then he took it home and kind of finished it up too. So it's kind of an interesting tree. Very cool. I'm excited to see it. <clears throat> Great. So are, are, you, uh, are you doing a lot of teaching these days? So I, I actually remember, I, I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, I, I think technically you were probably my first bonsai teacher. <laughs> um, in, in that, <laughs> no, no. I, uh, back in, let's see, I can't remember what year it would have been, maybe like oh, sometime 06 through 08, I went to a Golden State show or convention and you did a redwood workshop and I took the workshop. And so I think that was one of the, the first trees I ever really wired up and, and worked on and that was under you. So thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Normally, just about every GSB con GSBF convention, I do a workshop. I'll be doing one in October too. And you know, you get, I don't like, I don't know how to say this, you get kind of, pigeonholed into in fact people refer to me as redwood bob and it always kind of bristles because like i like to think i'm not just the redwood guy i do other things also besides but i do understand that's kind of what i offer a lot so forever i would do every time there's a convention bob would you do a redwood workshop and i finally said well i want to do other things so i've done a pretty i was pretty happy in riverside i did a sierra juniper workshop and uh, I've done pygmy cypress workshops, and in October, uh, I'm doing a workshop with on pygmy cypress at JSBF there too. And, uh, th that's, that's great. My, my new favorite tree, not new. I've been doing it for a long time, but currently it seems to be my favorite tree. I like, and it really has seemed to caught on with the public too. You know, at the conventions and shows, I did a at showing. I did a workshop on some small pygmy cypress and a lot of people really weren't that aware of them and got a lot of attention and you know, a lot of uh, positive feedback you know about this oh yeah. yeah yeah no i'm i'm a big fan of the pygmy cypress uh <clears throat> love ryan neal's forest that he created that that's absolutely beautiful that pyg pygmy cypress hey, when he first came back yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I believe how much how much they've grown just the girth they put on the trunks, you know, they probably are four or five times larger than when I, when I sold them to him. Oh, wow. I guess when you get them out of that, uh, that hard pan clay, the acidic, the acidic environment, they probably take off a bit and don't grow so dwarfed. If it's okay, uh, I was hoping to come, and I, it's funny you say they call you Redwood Bob uh, <laughs> and, and that you may 
take that on as a negative um, because. I just want to, and I just don't want to be thought only as Ridley. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, what I and I totally understand and get that. I think that uh, what you have done for Coast Redwood within the bonsai community is absolutely massive. It. I feel like you really are the one, the one guy that really championed Coast Redwood as bonsai, and without you. I have no idea, you know, where we would be at with with redwood as a bonsai species uh, in North America. And so I think it is uh, an incredible thing that you have done. Very, very important thing. I'm really curious to, to ask you about what it was like in the earlier days when you, you just started collecting redwoods and, and how people kind of accepted those if they sold well. But another thing that I, I think is really important pointing out is just that in that you kind of championed redwood you made it into what it is today and people are doing incredible things with redwood these days i hope that maybe that inspires other people to go out and look for different species that we're not currently utilizing within the u.s and start working with those start collecting those start propagating them start developing trunks just like you kind of did with redwood it was kind of Interest, at least for me, interesting that, you know, as a school teacher, you don't have a lot of discretionary funds. I live right in the Redwoods. And I, when I went to my first Red show, there was a Redwood in the show. And I don't know if you knew Bill Sullivan or not. He was kind of the early first generation bonsai people after World War II and had a Redwood. In fact, it's the, it's in the collection north at Lake Merritt. It's, it's tree number one. If, so that's him. And I saw that and I thought, well, I live where the Redwoods are. I'm going to start digging those, which that's kind of how I got started. And I was digging them for myself. And then I would take a few to our show with the member sale table and they sold really quickly. And then I talked to my son, Zach, about if we want to do a business, we could do it together. I, I think there's a market there. And it really, it did take off. It was amazing how uh, the interest, uh, the, the challenge was that redwoods, you know, they don't grow easily or, you know, they, they can't take the severe winters back east. They can't take the hot, dry weather, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to learn how to work or deal with that as a species. And we saw a lot to people back east, but they have greenhouses where they're heated and things like that also. So interestingly, the redwoods really did take off. But you know, it was kind of funny when Kimura came to Sacramento and Ryan was still apprenticing under him, he came with him as his interpreter. And it's before we really, we kind of knew each other, but not really well. And they came by my booth. We were setting up that Thursday night. We haven't quite opened yet. And they were talking in Japanese. And uh, later, when Ryan came back, he said, you know, when we came to, to Sacramento, Kimura said those will never make good ones. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, oh, uh, interesting. I think I had one in the exhibit. He saw that, and it kind of changed his mind a bit. Too, but, it was, but that was kind of his original reactions <laughs> so. oh interesting well did uh, did i hear that mitsuya mr mitsuya actually took some back to japan 12 and i 12 Small, okay and actually 
Kathy took six back with her, and then uh, Gordon Jake took six with him when they were going back. You know, they took him through with, with the luggage and stuff. Yeah. And, okay. And I guess it, what, what what we've learned about bonsai at redwoods is you have this perception of redwoods as being these tall, majestic, formal uprights that go up three or four hundred feet. But once you go out in the forest, there's all kinds of interesting, you know, redwoods that have been, I don't know, run over during logging operations. They've been cut back. They re-sprout, new leaders. And the most interesting part of the, the whole tree is what's below the soil anyway. You, you wind up exposing these, the base that's under there and bring them up and plant them higher. It's just really interesting material. So even... At showing, I used to do uh, redwood showing workshops. You know, you could, so you, they're not always these big, tall, formal uprights. They can be small and different shapes and sizes. There's, just, there's no end to it, really. Yeah. Oh yeah, I I love how diverse the redwood can be with bonsai. So we have trees that look like trees in nature, the big, tall, long ones with longer trunks, right. and then we have, uh, you know, you could do very much a bonsai style redwood some of them are are very sculptural in nature that you know similar to juniper the deadwood is is very interesting and uh and unique uh so that is uh i, I love the diversity within redwoods and and people are just improving with <clears throat> with actually working on the foliage and uh like Peter T, for example, have you, did you see Jeff Stern's tree? I'm sure you did in the Pacific Mosaic Expo. As much as I love Peter's work, <laughs> I thought that foliage was pretty tight. It almost looked like a juniper. It was so tight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, different, different way of uh, managing the foliage, and yeah, it, it is very, very tight. Uh, <clears throat> but it, it's just cool to see the different approaches, you know. So. <laughs> Awesome. Well, and part of this may be because uh, I am a bonsai collector myself, and I'm, I'm just naturally curious about a lot of things. Um, I was hoping to talk with you a little bit more about specifically collecting redwoods. Um, please, like, <laughs> uh, if there's any questions that you don't want to answer, do not answer them. I'm not <laughs> not going to be asking you about location or anything like that. We know that um, <laughs> as a collector, you have the answer. <laughs> We're collecting in the mountains. <laughs> so for redwoods, as in any type of collecting, you always collect with permission. It's always on private property. And what's interesting to me, we've lived here 53 years, so we know a lot, a lot of people. And when I tell them what I'm looking to collect, it's never really going to develop into timber. And so they go ahead, you know, go ahead and dig and we don't care. And I kind of joke with them. I say, well, I'm not going to charge you for, you know, clearing your land or, or things like that. I'll, <laughs> just, I'll take them off your hands for you. And they're always amazed that we, we would work that hard to dig up a stump or something. So, anyway. Yeah. But the thing with different redwoods from others, because I collect the pygmy cypress, oaks, shore pines, cedar junipers, what's different about the... <clears throat> The redwoods, and when I found, when I, the first time I dug a redwood, I always remember, I took all day to dig this redwood. I dug the biggest foxhole, dug way down, got all these roots. <laughs> it, took, it literally took me all day and brought it home, and of course it sprouted. But then you learned over, if actually Zach learned this when he actually started collecting 
in volume, you don't need a lot of roots when you dig up a redwood. All you need is a few feeder roots. And so those big tap roots that go down or out, I mean, you just take, and, and the biggest help has been the sawzall. You just cut through those big roots, cut underneath it. And I, I'm kind of simplifying. It's still more, it's still some work to it. But you get them home and you plant them. And I plant in the sandy mix. And those feeder roots within six months to a year have filled up the pot with nothing but fine feeder roots. And we even take a chainsaw and flat cut the bottom so you can get them into a bonsai pot. So they're very vigorous growers. And unlike, well, the oaks will do this, but unlike uh, pygmy cypress and other things, when we bring them home, usually all the foliage is up higher, so we'll cut them shorter and there's no foliage on the tree. But it's one of the species that will push buds on old bark or old, the old trunk and stuff. So I'm looking at stuff I collected a month ago out there, and there's buds already popping on them, so it doesn't take that long. So, yeah. That's, a, That's great. Now, can you collect a redwood with no foliage on it and have it survive, or is that not possible? Well, that's what I'm saying. Is when we bring them home, they're basically like fence posts. There's nothing on them. Ah, got it. Okay. Because if you're looking at a 30-foot tree and we cut it down to three or four feet, all the foliage is up higher, so there's nothing on it at all. And ah, what ah. I've also found is if by chance there is some foliage on there, it will die back and die, and then the new buds didn't pop. So, uh, you know, you don't need that foliage at all. Gotcha. So. Very interesting. Nice. And so now, is it a, a relatively easy collect, like easier than collecting a Sierra juniper or a pygmy cypress, would you say? Well, the pygmy is the easiest. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Because really, they, they, they grow in this hard pan or this clay. And so the, the timing is important. You don't want it too wet or too dry. And at the right time, you get it's just one shovel depth. You just dig around to make a perimeter, dig under it, lift it up, and that's it. You know, maybe three to five minutes you've dug it up. It's just wow, it's okay, so, makes sense. Uh, yeah, and anytime it's a big tree, it's just going to take more time to collect compared to a smaller one yeah. as well. So, with the redwoods, again, the bigger the tree, the more time to get the roots and stuff. And you know, with the Sierras, it kind of varies where you're collecting. I mean, you might run into some decomposed granite where they're sitting in a pocket. You can lift them right out. Other times you're working hours to move boulders and this and that. So yeah, it can be a lot of work. Most definitely. With the redwoods, I mean, I've seen some pretty big ones that you've collected uh, yep. <laughs> and some, some really incredible trees. Um, what keeps them dwarfed or, or what what do you think like uh keeps them small is it, it are they mostly old fire roads or um is there anything that's affecting their growth and, well, and is the, it the, the the tall formal uprights you see that may be four feet of, of ours they might have been 30 feet tall out in the woods when we collected them so they're wow. you know, growing but we cut them down and and bring them home that way like the, the the one tree you're referring to that was in the artisans club cup it was on a logging road and when they were cutting the road in they sliced through the tree and that's why it has all that dead wood in the front like that and the whole thing was buried in the bank and we uncovered that and so anyway that's it, it kind of varies like that very interesting okay 
What is the the soil that they are growing in naturally? Is it a uh, pretty easy to get into? It varies. I mean, some of it, the stuff we're digging right now, it's kind of on the clayish side, but you can run into sandy soil. It'll vary from area to area. Okay. Makes now, what's sense. interesting, too, is that people will say, oh, I don't know, what is it, Santa Cruz, Aptos Blue or this or that? Yeah. They're, they're all the sempervarians. The only difference is there's genetic differences in the coloring and even the foliage a little bit. Even the stuff we collect here, you bring them home and you put them side by side, some of the foliage is maybe lacier, some's a little bit more compact. The color may vary from a light green to almost a bluish, but those are all slight genetic differences within that Sequoia subvariant, but they're all the same species. Gotcha. And are you usually able to drive right up to, to them when you collect them, or are you hiking hiking out? It's not like the Sierras, but uh, we've been collecting a lot lately, and it's been fairly close to the... I mean, they're, all, they're, they're, they're I mean, a four-wheel drive in the logging roads, but fairly close. I would say this last collecting season, we're up on one hill there, but they come down, it's maybe a couple hundred yards. It's not too bad. Have you uh, have you packed some out before? And maybe I'm talking Sierras or Redwoods. Do you ever pack them out? And and what have you used to carry them out with? Like a, a metal. Not so much, but the Sierras. I mean, I'm I'm sure you have the same type of backpack frame with a shelf on the back, PVC tubes on the side where I put in my drop my axe or pickaxe and tools, uh, loppers, and then. Uh, you know, tie them to the shelf and and, and come down the, the hill with those things. <laughs> yeah. You know, for, for me, I'm going to be 79 this year, so I do a lot of not straight down the hill. It's a lot of serpentine back and forth down the hill. And, and to be honest, I, I have a young man that helps me now with the collecting because – and I don't want to talk about a lot, but between my age and I've had a lot of, uh, I was wounded in Vietnam and lost the use of both my arms pretty much. And I've had 17, between back and knees and hips, a lot of surgery. So uh, so the last few years, I do have a young man who's been a huge help to me in terms of the collecting and things like that. And so that, and with him, without him, I have, could not have maintained the business right you know, as I am right now. And so I'm really appreciative of um, Holden. Yeah, most definitely. Great. Well, fantastic that you have collected so many trees over the years. Going back to one question that we were talking about previously, uh, when you first started collecting them and selling them, were they uh, very popular? Did they did they sell well, or did did that kind of take take a little bit of time? No, they sold well right from the beginning. I remember the first show we went to in Santa Rosa. That's when Zach was doing all the collecting, and the first time we went there and and walked away, I mean, couldn't believe you know how popular they were. And, uh, it's, it's always been um, awesome. That's, can't think that's... of a time where we had to kind of build build it up, and it's just, I mean, you know, it's almost twenty five years now since we've had the business and doing this and collecting the records. So. And what was really helpful was about the time we started, 
the internet and social media came in and it opened up the whole world as your market. And yeah. So, I mean, here we're on this off the beaten path here. Nobody, I mean, we get six people a year here if we're lucky or going to shows, but with our website and, you know, communicating with people and emailing and, and then people posting things on, so, you know, Facebook, I just got this from Bob Scheinman, somebody else will contact me. And Ryan Neal has been extremely generous in terms of giving credit to not only myself, but where he sources material from. You know, he'll work on a, a trade and say, well, I, just, I got this from Bob Scheinman. And I always know my name was mentioned because then people will contact me right after that from around the country saying, well, Ryan Neal just mentioned you. We should. And he'll even tell people, well, you know, especially, he told me at the uh, Pacific Expo, he had students who wanted uh, the Pygmy Cypress. He said, well, go, you know, when Bob Shagan comes, go see him. So he's very generous in that way. I always appreciate that, too. So for whatever reason, uh, we were very lucky. We picked the right product. And my always... I always looked at things like I want to sell things other people aren't selling. So the pygmy cypress, the redwoods, even the oaks. A lot of people don't sell oaks, but you know we've been collecting quite a few oaks and things like that. So, and what's what's happened too is that with COVID, a lot of businesses suffered, even went out of business. And a lot of some businesses went the other direction, and for whatever, and we didn't have a business plan. We had no idea what was going to happen. We thought COVID, well, three or four months, who knows? But with the shows closing, and we've always had a website and sold stuff on our website, but once COVID hit, everybody stayed home and went to our website. I mean, it just went crazy, our website. I couldn't, and we've had the best three years we've had in business during the COVID years. And before we doing shows, we've established this base to, uh, website. It's like... <laughs> My wife says, how much longer are you going to do this? I said, I don't know. I just take one year at a time. As long as I'm enjoying it, which I am, you know, I'll keep doing That's it. That's the key. That's a kind of a, I, I just, I really, I mean, you've mentioned earlier, once I, I, I people are passionate, I really love what I'm doing. And if I didn't do it, what would I do? I don't want to sit around and just get old. <laughs> as long as I can. <laughs> and, and yeah. Then, do i mean what more can i ask for yeah i feel like one of the reasons i love bonsai so much is because it's a great hobby that can take you you know into the rest of your life you can uh the trees might get a little bit smaller but you can work on them for a very long time whereas you know a lot of things like a lot of sports and uh different activities that you could pick up you kind of can't it gets really hard at a certain point Ruin my back and knees. I can't do that. So. Yeah. So, you know, the thing, the, the great thing for bonsai for me is I tend to be, by nature, I'm impatient. <laughs> balance for me. It, it balances that sense of uh, learning to be patient, and I, that's probably the biggest reward I've gotten over this. And probably that's why my wife encouraged me to get back into bonsai. <laughs> 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 Wives are pretty smart, so. Absolutely. I recognize it. And you know this, there are people who work on bonsai. If you're working and wiring quietly and time passes, it's almost like a meditation that you're doing. You know, there's a meditative quality to what you're doing. And so, uh, yeah, I just uh, I, I found my passion and continue doing it. So.
Hey, Bob, I was curious. Uh, do you so all the all the redwoods that you've sold, which has been just an absolutely crazy amount. Which I I have a really nice redwood that I purchased from you. Pictures, I think you've done a great job on it. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, do you have an all-time favorite that that you can think of? And you don't have to give me an answer on this. I know I'm kind of sprung well, it on you. One from the Artisan's Cup, and I'm going to show one of the ribs I haven't shown before. It's a big. It's a four, four, four and a half foot upright, but the whole center is dead, and I've never shown it, so I'm gonna bring that. And I always say it's the last tree I worked on; it's always my favorite. So, so yeah, you see that change, and it's like it excites you. But the, the artisan's kept tree is probably if I had to pick one, it's probably my favorite tree of mine, my redwood. Yeah, it's a great one. I love it. Very nice. Switching gears a little bit to the uh, the pygmy cypress. I, I read in my, I have a uh, Conifers of California book, and I read that the uh, Mendocino Pygmy Cypress is actually the rarest native conifer in the U.S. So your fun fact for the day. Um, yeah, I know they're fairly rare. Because they, even up here, they grow in small pockets. And it's, it, if you draw a line of Highway 1 and go up three or four miles, elevation is about six eight hundred feet there's a parallel that line runs parallel to highway one at that elevation but it's not continuous you'll find pockets here and there of this soil that's clay and there's no nutrients where they grow very small areas and so we've you know found an area where we have permission to grow there, there was a real misconception about the pygmy cypress and when i first joined rebs they said, well, you live and there's pygmy cypress, but they can't be collected. They don't survive. We've tried and they don't survive. And then, um, <laughs> I won't name names out of respect, but a few of the old timers said, if you're going to collect them, you need to bear root them because the soil isn't any good. And so take all the old soil off and then put them in the bonsai soil. And the, the outcome was 100% failure. They all died. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, I, that's not the answer. And I don't, you know, some people are really good about keeping records of what they did and when they did them. And with, I don't know how I got from point A to point B. Point B, I've, I've reached a point where I feel very, very comfortable, and I have for a number of years, is you collect, like I said, you capture all of the roots and you plant them that way and you backfill around that. And then every year you remove about a third of the original soil i do the circumference and a little bit underneath in the second year and then the third year you pr pretty much and i always leave just a little bit of the original soil around the base i don't know why i just do it i don't have any scientific reasons for it ryan said he does the same thing boone says he buries them all but at least we all agree it's a process of reducing and transitioning and you can't do it all at once and i always say it's like a three to four year process from collection to bonsai pot. And in bonsai time, that's not a long time anyway. And you can actually uh, start styling after year two. I mean, you can get pretty well styled because they don't back bud. So you don't want to get the foliage run and you lose all the interior growth either. So you really want to start styling them fairly early. You want them to be established at least after the first year. And so I would say if I collect in February, maybe the following 
not that that not that spring or summer, but the following one, you would start working on the tree, and you probably have transition, maybe one transition with the soil in that spring. So maybe later in the summer, you know, you start doing a little styling. So uh, it's you know, it's interesting. Both the redwoods and the pygmy cypress, there wasn't much written about them. So for me, it was learn as you go. <laughs> it was yeah. experimenting and figuring it out. Somebody showed me a book once, the early bonsai book that said redwoods would never make good bonsai. <laughs> and so, so there's really nothing that was ever written. A guide that would guide, it was like I say, it was just learn as you as I went. And so the redwoods yeah. were probably a little easier, but even the pygmy cypress, you know, one year of failures like this isn't the answer. I know that. So the only answer I haven't found yet is those darn manzanita. They do not like to be transplanted. So those I, 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 that battle I've given up on is, and I don't want to, you know, keep digging them and have them die on you. But there's some gorgeous <clears throat> pygmy manzanita out there that just won't survive. Yeah. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, I have kind of given up on manzanita as well. And I was growing like six different varieties and I was doing it from cuttings and I was experimenting with different soil mixes. I'd have some in Kanuma, some in uh, Akadama pumice uh, scoria, and I would twist them up like the kind of uh, man-made junipers that we see in Japan. And I would add shari. And for whatever reason, I, my experience was they would, they would, do great for about six years or so maybe five five six years they would not not a single problem and then they would kind of go downhill slowly after that and it was like fungal issues i don't know what the deal is with that but i love manzanita and i'm i'm bummed that they uh Even so you find some spectacular manzanita too right yeah sierra. yeah up in the sierra yeah manzanita all over california and i have them in my landscape they grow don't need to water them. They they grow like weeds. They're very they're bulletproof um, in the landscape, but they don't like the containerized environment for some reason. So I don't know. So I, having, having said that, last year we were digging oaks, and it wasn't pygmy. It was you know regular soil, and there was two big manzanita burls. I think the tree had been cut down, and the burl was there, and it sprouted up again. They were in the way, and they popped right up with only a few roots. And I thought, well, I'm going to take them all. If they, <laughs> I'll plant them. If they don't grow, I'll slab them and make. Because I sell those slabs, too. I'll make slabs out of them. Yeah, and it's been since last year, and they've been growing like crazy, and they flowered twice. And, but I'm afraid to transplant them. I don't want to touch them. I don't know what to do with them. And so I have those two, but I don't know what else to do with them. Just let, huh. them, grow, let them grow. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck. Good luck with those. Um, and I, I love manzanita. I think they're just absolutely gorgeous. And I really wish that they uh, that that we can use them as bonsai. I, there's probably some type of something that we could do that would uh, make them work. But I, I'm just not sure what that is exactly. The thing I've been collecting in the pygmy forest. It's funny, sometimes you get tunnel vision because I would go and just see pygmy cypress. That's why I went there. And then about three or four years ago, there was a fellow with me and he said, you know, there's some really neat shore pines here. And I started looking at shore pines. <laughs> and they've been collecting the shore pine and they, they transplant fairly well, you know, like the pygmy cypress. And so 
they're collecting some really neat short pines again in the pygmy forest they have the nice old bark on them nice age <clears throat> you know small ones but i've collected some pretty good big ones also and so that that's been kind of fun and kind of something new also so i've been doing that that's great yeah, yeah. uh short short pines are fantastic what kind of uh do you use uh sifted pumice after the collection is that what you put them in initially no it's it's a fairly sandy mix all this stuff is because for me it's like creating good feeder roots and sand seems to create good feeder roots the only problem is people complain about my the, the trees are so damn heavy when they when they get <laughs> in a 25 gallon tub you know with a sandy mix uh, They'll say, oh. Gotcha. Makes sense. Was curious, uh, with all with all the different collecting, what are some of the other tools you use? So I, I think I've heard a um, reciprocating saw and a and a metal frame backpack. Anything else? So when we first started collecting, we used a folding hand saw. You're on your belly trying to cut through those roots. You hit dirt and it goes dull, and then. It was just, no wonder it took all day to collect one red. It was just really labor intensive. And then we ran across these, I think they were like camping hand chainsaws. It was like a chainsaw blade. They had little handles on either end, and you could pull them back and forth and cut through the roots. But then those would get tangled too if you had the exact angle. But really, the sawzall was the key that really made collecting, in my mind, was a big changer but then we you know when we go out so my helper laughed at me but a couple of guys on social media were, were referring to this shovel called the weed root 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 lacquer or root slayer root slayer it's a pointed shovel with the serrated edges to them and it really works great for like you know digging down because lots of times you run, you know, there's, there's roots crisscrossing everywhere in the soil, and it cuts right through that, too. So the root slayer shovel, uh, even a root hook, we you know, to kind of clean out the roots and stuff like that. But And also a pickaxe, you know, sometimes like that, crowbars. My, my latest addition this year, and again, my helper laughed until we, we used it, it was to come along. <laughs> and so... You know, you get to a certain point with the redwoods, and there's these big roots under the root, and it'll be loose, and we'll hook up the come along and start pulling the tree forward, and then he get under and cut the roots, and then it worked great. So we huh. use the come along also. <laughs> You're always looking for that magic tool. Yeah. An ice pick, I have like, which is lightweight, you know, and that works really well too for just kind of moving soil and stuff like that. You know what? Gotcha. You don't want to be carrying too much stuff. It's always about, you know, what's efficient and what you really need. And so, and I don't use them, but I use them a few times in the Sierra, these scissor jacks, you know, these old, the car scissor jacks. Sometimes they get in between the boulders and then kind of open up the boulders. I did that a few times with those too, but they're heavy. So you don't want to be carrying them all around with you. So, totally. So you just kind of, imp- you know, just look for stuff that you think would be cool for collecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, like in the Sierras, I don't know what you did, but you know, we'd always carry a bottle and wet the roots and then wrap them in wet newspaper and then uh, electrical tape with bags around them to keep them wet till we got home. 
but with the redwoods, we just throw them in the back of the truck. <laughs> you know, this last summer, which is the wrong time to be collecting, I got a call from a guy, and he said, Bob, we got the back over here. We're pulling out these redwood stumps. If you don't come and get them, they're going on the burn pile. <laughs> so I got my helper, and we went there. I think we brought home for like, there was 105 of them. There was like three pickup loads. Wow. And I had tubs of water everywhere soaking them until we get so we could uh, until we got a chance to plant them. And so we get them all planted. And so even collecting those in June, I think like ninety five percent of them sprouted and took off too. So <laughs> so that was wow. easy. <laughs> yeah, got it, got it. That's great. Awesome. Well, you know, I think we, we kind of covered uh, most of the questions that I had. Was there anything else, like any other topics that you wanted to hit on or any? Uh, I think we talked about the rendezvous and the Reb show coming up, which I'm really excited about. You know, I, I think the biggest challenge we face is attracting young people into bonsai and having them stay with it and being committed to it. And as a club, we've tried everything to from you know, offering, giving them free tools, free lessons, free plants, trying to get them, and they'll stick with it for a short time, and then we lose them. And you know, every once in a while, and, and that's not in every case, but I think it's it's the rule or the exception. It's, and I think every club will talk about trying to get younger people into it and, and stay with it. And and I think even Japan, from what I've heard, it's the same problem where the younger generation isn't as interested. And that's why over the years we have more and more Japanese professionals coming to America that never came before because really uh, there's a losing interest in Japan so they have more time. And even accepting, you know, non-Japanese as princesses also, that wasn't heard of, you know, years ago. But lack of interest, uh, I, I think, I don't know, you know, I'm an old man, but I think it's, that instant gratification with all these electronic devices that the young people are attracted to, and they want instant results, you know, you play a game or whatever. With bonsai, you know, it's a commitment. It's never finished. It's an ongoing process. Uh, it's a tough one. So I, I think I would guess every club you talk to would say that's a challenge that they deal with. There's been a couple of clubs that have been very successful. Portland and San Diego are just amazing clubs. <laughs> but in general, it's I think it's a, a common challenge that we're all looking at. And we lost track during COVID because we didn't do any kind of Zooming or social media types of meetings or anything like that. There didn't seem to be any club that had the, the experience or was interested in doing it. Where I know, like one of the Sacramento clubs, they're... Uh, membership almost doubled because of that so so we lost tra a lot of traction so we're almost starting over as a new club again it's been kind of a, a bit of a challenge which which did surprise me yeah that's interesting unfortunately i feel like i don't have the answers when it comes to attracting the newer generation other than uh you know i think it is really cool when tommy lee starts talking about bonsai on his instagram page uh, i think it's there's a lot more information on youtube and uh just streaming online and i don't know i for some i'm i'm pretty optimistic about young the younger generation wanting to get into bonsai i i think uh in the u.s it's probably looking pretty good i, I just have a feeling 
You also... Yeah, I don't want to seem totally negative when I've lost hope because what you said is true. I, you know, there are a lot of... But, but I guess for me, you, you, if you're looking at YouTube and stuff, to me, it's, it's all about hands-on, you know, working with people who have experience and not just watching a video and trying to do it. But Yeah. yeah. Well... Yeah, also, and I agree. I mean, as someone that is somewhat addicted addicted to my phone, and I need to learn how to not be, and I recognize that I need to <laughs> uh, set rules for myself and things like that because it it really is important to not be addicted to to too much, you know, social media, your phone screens. I, I do think that uh, people will crave real interactions and uh, I think there's nothing more real than having an, an interaction with a bonsai tree so I, I don't know I, I think that things will look good uh, but in terms of attracting them to a club that that might be kind of tough other than like maybe if you started really hitting social media hard that that could improve it I, I hope I would think <laughs> it has to be somebody I don't even know what Instagram is. Somebody said to me, you, you should have an Instagram account if you have a business. You'll really, and I said, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm on Facebook. And that's about all I can handle. And even the, our website, we have somebody that does it for us and whatever. It's like, you know, it's, but I do hear you because, you know, at the Collection North, when they have their annual auction, there's a huge crowd there and a lot of young people that you don't recognize don't belong to clubs too. So, there's a lot of validity in what you're saying, and I, I do recognize that. Yeah, yeah. The new social media platform, which is very controversial, is uh, called TikTok. And uh, <laughs> I feel like... It's owned by China or somebody in China owns TikTok. So <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of drama behind that and uh, potentially a lot of spying and association yeah. with the Chinese government and things like that. But <laughs> uh, a lot of, you know, the younger generation does love, seem to love TikTok. And uh, I feel like someone is going to really blow up on TikTok. A, a few people have already done a pretty good job with it. But I, I think, well, if someone really wanted to make a difference with the online presence, I feel like TikTok is the way to go. Personally, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get too involved there. But <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do go to the high school. I'm invited by the ag teacher, and I always do a presentation for their ag class. And it's usually well received, and I did it last week. And one of the students said to me, Would you come back and teach us how to do this? So, you know, like have a class. And so there, there was that interest. And, and I just, well, I said, you know, be hard to schedule. I do. Every so often, I'll do a beginner's introduction class through the Guala Arts here as a, as a class. But, you know, it's the whole idea of exposure. You plant a seed, you never know what's going to happen. So I'm always yeah. happy to share with the, with the students and stuff like that, too. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. Well, that's because the teacher hadn't told them, but she had. I had sent her a picture of me and Tommy Lee, and at the very end, she said, I want you to see Mr. Shiny. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, that's so cool. Right. Yeah. And, you know, also just talking about the social media, I, I never even texted because I would say, well, this call me, we'll talk. And then about three months ago, somebody said, 
first of all, with my injuries, I, my hand coordination is very good. So typing or, or punching those letters, I can't do. So somebody says, Bob, do you know there's a mic here? You can just talk and it'll, the text will, you know, it'll translate what you want to say. So yeah. Since then, the last three months, I've been doing a lot of texting. So <laughs> well for me. Nice, <laughs> nice. It's funny how it will interpret some of the words you say also. They come out totally different, but it's always kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I do think that there is something very valuable in actually having a real conversation with people. And so I'm kind of old school in that. And I don't necessarily just like to text all the time. I like to pick up the phone and just talk with someone. I think that you can, you really communicate better like that, but I'm glad you discovered voice text. <laughs> That's, <great. clears throat> That's a huge step for me. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, Bob, Hey, thank you so much for your time. I, I think uh, you, really have done an incredible amount for the bonsai community and it sounds like you're still extremely passionate about bonsai and that makes me very very happy to see like i was saying earlier it's really cool it's very impressive that you really championed the redwood and the pygmy cypress i don't know where we would be without you in terms of with those two types of trees especially and uh, i hope that that inspires other people to go out and see what types of trees grow around them uh, or potentially pick out some of our natives or, or even just trees that aren't commonly used as bonsai and start experimenting with them and growing them if they like those trees. Sure, yeah. I, I, I didn't start off intending to make a name for myself in the Redwood and bonsai world. In fact, Ryan Neal and I were having a conversation one time and I said, you know, Ryan, I really do appreciate you put my name out there and actually from a business standpoint for sure it's made a difference but but the idea that my name is recognized out there I didn't start off in bonsai to do that it was just a way to collect trees so I could have material to work on and 25 years later it's grown into this which I never it wasn't part of my big plan it just kind of happened but but then it's, but I said you know as you get older it's kind of nice to know that there is maybe a bit of a legacy that you'll leave, you know, that you made a difference. And so, uh, like I said, it wasn't my intent, but I do appreciate that. I feel really good about that, too. And I really appreciate when, you know, for you to invite me here and say the things you said, it makes me feel really good. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you, you most definitely have... Uh, left a, a legacy. I mean, you're you're still around here, <laughs> so not going anywhere anytime soon. But uh, you you have absolutely, and uh, I really appreciate all your contributions to the U.S. bonsai scene. And <clears throat> please keep it up. Don't stop selling those redwoods. Um, I'm definitely going to be shopping around and <laughs> continuing to take a look uh, at what you got for sale. Really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. All right. Take care. Hey, great night. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah.